No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, I'm Pastor Anthony, and you are at the Vine Campus of New Day Community Church. It's just going to be a quick 45-minute sermon. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. 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 Relax, it'll be easy for you all, man. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> well, we're talking about being church, and the first sermon that we're going to do in the Being Church series is about church as family with the subtitle, It's Just a Metaphor, right? And, uh, oh, dang, all right, well, you guys know where the offering box is. The, uh, <laughs> no, uh, you're right, it's not. We're jumping into close, but I want to say a few things about church as family by way of intro. And the first thing is we have an ideal idea of what family is, and then we have the reality of what family usually is. Is this true? Come on. Yeah, come so on, the ideal picture of family is probably <laughs> probably the Cleavers. All right. Now this was before my time. I grew up watching another show on TV that had a prominent family that I loved, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the Cleavers were like the ideal family. Everybody's idea of what the perfect family would be like. Right. Just seven quick attributes about probably the ideal family. This is not an exhaustive list, right? But the ideal family is a safe place. You come home, you're not worried. Like, it's where you rest. You take a deep breath in the presence of your family. You're happy. There's not a lot of anger or tension in the home. It's peaceful, right? If it's Saturday afternoon and you just want to curl up with a book, you can do that. It's supportive. If school's rough, if life is hard, where do you go to get built up? Where do you go to get talked to? A little pep talk, you know what I mean? Some, some needed assistance. You go to the family. It's loving. In all the ways that you might need love, the family is where you would go first. It's stable. You don't have to worry about people freaking out. You know, the, the character of, of Ward Cleaver did not change radically from show to show. Yeah. Ward was pretty stable. Yeah. Yeah. He's actually Prager you. I don't know if you listen to those. I shouldn't say that name. Uh, they did a thing on, like, the sexiest man in the world or something like that, and it was Ward Cleaver. And they made a convincing argument for the fact that that kind of stability and responsibility was very manly and that we need to be more like Ward. So he was a stable dude. Everybody in the family was. And you know what else? It was permanent. Yeah. You weren't going to come home and find somebody gone and mom crying in the kitchen. But this is the ideal. Like I said, this is not the family I grew up watching. The TV show I grew up watching that I absolutely loved was the Cosby Show. Yeah. Come on, my generation is in the house. What's the, the son's name? Was it Theo? Yes. Like, I remember when Theo got the earring, and like Bill sitting on the bed next to Theo. Do you guys remember this? And they're like doing the lean so that his dad wouldn't be able to like see the earring. <laughs> I can still see it in my mind. I love the Cosby Show, man. They did some silly, stupid stuff, and they always resolved it. Yeah. Right? It was great. But that was the ideal. That was the picture. Right? You might say, that's just a show, man. We know what went on in real life. And I don't know if you follow the news. I watch oh, the news Lord. about as much as I watch sports, which is to say, almost not at all. <laughs> but I remember a few years ago, my man Bill Cosby is looking a little rough. And like, it's like 99.999% sure he was doing some really disturbing stuff back then. Yep. So we have this ideal picture. It's a fiction. It's a show. It's just a show. And then you have the reality. And in a lot of our families, I'm afraid it might have felt that way. Yep. That we had the show, and then we had the reality. And the reality was that there were a lot of secrets. Yep. There was a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. There might have been a lot of shame. There might have been a lot of regret. Maybe on your end as well. I'm not going to make this too heavy. Don't worry. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. 
But I'm just saying, if your house was a household of anger, if your house was a household of various types of abuse, and if your house was a household that was at best unreliable and, you know, chaotic and, and gone one day at worst, that's sadly not unusual. It's just not. So we have the ideal, and then we have what is sadly too often the reality, and this is why people freak out when you say church is family. <laughs> Come on, man. Like, don't give me that. Like, okay, so uh, it's, it's, you know, it's church, it's family. So which one is it? Is it column, you know, one with the safe, happy, peaceful, supportive, loving, stable, permanent stuff? Or is it what we know it is? Come on, we watch the news, right? Everybody but me. Uh, it's full of secrets. <laughs> Lots of pain, shame, yep. regret, scandal, anger, abuse. It's unreliable. It's always changing. Those church people are always fighting each other. They can't get along. And then you come, and some guy in faded jeans tells you it's a family. That's, yeah, that's freaking me out. I'm not in for all that nonsense. Well, let me tell you. That's true. Amen. Stuff happens. But church is a place, unlike your biological family, where we have every reason to be the first column. We are empowered by a real Holy Spirit. We are changed at the core level, and we are given the tools and the example and the support to be everything we should be. Amen. Unlike our biological family, there is so much incentive and so much resource. There's, there's so many engines driving us to be the best possible thing in the church family. And while I'm not going to say that there's not a lot of reality, a sad amount of reality in that other column, yeah. we slap a big fat cross on all that stuff, Woo. and it gets applied in various ways to situations and to individuals, and it brings healing, and it brings reconciliation, and it changes people. Yeah. So we have every reason as a church family not to be that way. Yes. Right. So I want you to know I'm not saying it's all rosy in here in the church. It's not that everything's perfect. We don't want to be the show with the, the secret, you know, CD life on the inside. I'm saying we have an active God who lives inside all of us who is changing people and changing communities actively. Amen. Church is a place that should be the column on the left mm. and has every reason not to be the column on the right. And I'm sorry about the cheesy cross image. You'd be shocked at how hard it is to find a good cross image. I know. It, isn't that so tough? Really, it's hard to find. It's brutal, man. I just I avoid it actually. But all right, we're jumping out of that. I want to talk about three aspects of family. But before I do that, I want to prove to you, if I can, that it is more than a metaphor. How in the world are we family? Isn't that just a cute figure of speech? You know, oh, we're family. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I guess. Whatever. No, it's not just a metaphor. Check this out. We just did a series on 1 John. Yeah. 1 John calls everybody brothers and sisters yeah. all over the place. Check this out in 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Mm -hmm. So there, proved it. See, family. <laughs> so no doubt you're, you're going to throw a yellow flag at least and say, come on. You could say that's a metaphor. Right? Do we really want to believe that they're, he's talking about literal, actual children of the devil somehow? Like, eh, I'm not sold on that verse, Pastor Anthony. Give me another one. Okay? Yeah. I'll give me another okay. one. Here we go. This is from John 3.10. Excuse me. Nope. We added Matthew, small font, 49 to 50, I believe. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples. Let me set the scene. Time out. Jesus is preaching. 
His family shows up convinced he's out of his gourd. Yep. He's drawing a crowd. People are crowding him. They're like, we got to go save our boy, right? He is. He's flipped, man. We just got to take him home so he can be in a safe environment and get the help he needs. So <laughs> they, they let him know, hey, your family's here, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, and they want to talk to you. That's code for the men with the white coats are here, and they're going to take you back to a nice little village where you can rest. <laughs> and it says that Jesus stretches out his hand towards his disciples, and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my mother and sister. He is my brother and sister and mother. So yes. there you go, actual family. That's right. And somebody's throwing a flag on the play and saying his disciples were, were male. None of them could have been a mother. Obviously, Anthony, come on, man. <laughs> Metaphor. Give me something else. All right, I'll give you something else. Here we go. This is Matthew 19, 29. Peter, of course, pipes up and says, hey, man. You know, we left a lot of stuff to follow you. What's up? And Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. See, we receive many times as much through the church. That's right. Still not, not good enough. I'm not seeing any buy-in. All right. This is my last one. I, yeah, I know you're with me. You're the senior pastor, man. You're going to amen me. Like, no matter what, just talk to me later if I say something. Else. Okay. This is my last shot. Come on. This is from Mark. This is the same story, but Mark fills out the dialogue. Peter began to say to him, I told you it was Peter. Behold, hey, man, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much when? Now. Now, in this present age. And in case you don't understand what he's talking about, you receiving back, he names it all back to him. Now, in this present age... Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Now some realism, yeah. along with persecutions, but that's actually very important. Hold on. And in the age to come, eternal life. <clears throat> Would anyone like to make a convincing case for me right now that he is talking about metaphorical persecutions? <laughs> I would love to hear it, and I would love to be able to convince myself that that was true. But we know it's not. Good. He's talking about real stuff. He's saying, Peter, you've left that stuff for me, and thank you. But I am building a thing that you're only beginning to understand called the church. Yep. And it is going to be a family. And you are going to have more brothers and sisters and even parental-type figures than you can even count in. Yep. But please note he doesn't add fathers to the list. Because there was only one father in Jesus' mind. Amen. Amen. Come on. That was good. Somebody say, come on. Come on. Come on. I love the vision here. All right. Moving on. Church family, it's more than a metaphor. It's the real deal. Somehow he really means it. We are a family. I'm going to talk about three things you can expect in this church family. This is all things. These are all things. Let me get my grammar correctly. Correct. That we should be doing. Number one. The church family is a place of real encouragement. Let's look at three verses, not just to show how often the Bible tells us to encourage each other, but to also look at three different reasons we might want to encourage each other. 
Number one, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying, look, let's get together as a community, as a family, guys, and let's think about ways to encourage each other to do more good stuff. Yeah. And he's like, you don't do that by stopping getting together. You do that by encouraging each other. Mm-hmm. How is this family called church supposed to spur each other on to do better? Encouragement. Not snarkiness. Mm-hmm. Encouragement. This should be a place where we have encouragement locked and loaded and ready to go for every person in the room because they might need it. Does that make sense? Here's another one. Hebrews 3.13, same book a little earlier. Encourage one another. How often? Day after day. As long as it is still called today. That's a lot of encouragement. That's constant. That's people being almost ridiculously encouraging. And why does he say to do it this time? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we don't just encourage because we want each other to do better. We encourage people because we know sin is sneaky. And we know that it likes to come in through cracks in the doors. And, you know, you sometimes, like, wake up and it's like, oh, my gosh, how did this, this sin, like, attach to me? I'm like, I'm in sin. How in the world did this happen? I didn't even notice. Well, is the Bible's solution to that a good browbeating? No. It's a regular preventative dose of encouragement from the church family. Amen. We should be doing this. Not just so that people do well, but so that people don't accidentally fall into doing poorly. Mm-hmm. Encourage. Last one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 to 11. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that we will live together with him. Pause. That's really good news. Yeah. He's saying, you know, we're not actually going to fall into the hands of a wrathful, angry, nasty God. You know, he's actually paid a price so that we can live forever with him. He actually likes us, and he wants us around forever. So because of that, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. So this is inspiring gratitude. This is encouragement based on the amazing stuff that Jesus has done for us. So unlike a natural family which may try to get you to do better or stop doing bad things or be grateful by being nasty, snarky, manipulative, condescending, or just plain rude. And we all know how well that works if you've grown up in a family at all. In the church, these things should be done primarily through encouragement. We need to be encouraging each other. It's one of the hallmarks of this family that God is building. Number two or three. The church family is a place where there is real reconciliation. I was very tempted to write real correction. And I was afraid that people would go, oh my gosh, not correction. And that's kind of why I was tempted to do it. I, I like doing topics like that. And the church is a place where you can actually be corrected in a healthy way from someone that loves you so that you can be better. But I'm not going to talk about that. We can talk about that after if you want. Instead, I'm going to touch on the reconciliation aspect. If you do something crappy. Or if someone has done something crappy to you, what is the atmosphere supposed to be like in this church family? And here we go. Jesus paints a wonderful picture in two different passages in Matthew, and we'll finish it up with some Paul. It's just like the knockout punch. (laughs) All right, Matthew 18, 15 to 16. If your brother sins against you, all right, who's been crappy? You were the other guy. 
Either one. The other guy. You're, you're, yes, probably both. No, it's the other guy. He sinned against you. Jesus treats this like it's a blatant wrong. The other guy was, was poopy, and, and you were the recipient. All right. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Do not go to Facebook. Do not go to your best friend. You, you know what he did. You don't need to get somebody's second opinion on it. Yeah. Right? Go talk to him. I, and we'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> anyway, you know what's up. Go talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. And if he listens to you, you have gained your, what's that word? Brother. 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 Always the family language. Amazing. But if he does not listen, if he's like, you're out of your mind. I didn't do that. You took it the wrong way. Blah, blah, blah. Well, if he doesn't own up to it, you could be wrong. He could be wrong. Who knows? Take two or three other people so that you can hash this thing out, man. Be reconciled. And it goes on to say, if that doesn't work, you talk to the church. But there are steps. And it starts with one-on-one -on -one going. And nine times out of ten, I'm willing to bet that's where it'll end. One-on-one yep. -on -one going. But what if you were the guy that has been crappy? What if you misunderstand what one of your roommates is trying to tell you and you have an abnormally strong reaction and like shove his words right back in his face hypothetically two days ago in the kitchen. <laughs> what if that happens? So here we go. If you are offering your gift at the altar, this is in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is painting a picture of a person entering into God's presence to give a gift to God at the altar, right? He's going to worship. And Jesus says, hey, let me tell you something. If you're going to do that, and you're going to put your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, you feel that twinge in your heart like, oh, man, I was kind of a punk to Chris. That probably wasn't good. I did not handle that well. Ugh. Jesus doesn't say, just offer your gift. I accept your worship. It's cool. Handle it later. It's such a priority to Jesus. He says, leave the gift there. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. Yeah. Let's shrink the main points of these to these two sentences. If your brother sins against you, go. If your brother has something against you, go. The atmosphere of reconciliation in the family of God is such that it's a race to the middle. You should meet each other on the way to each other's houses. With, I apologize and please forgive me on your lips as appropriate. Mm. That's how this thing is supposed to work. Come on. Why? What's the motivation? What will drive a, a culture like that? And we get the reason from Paul. Here, reason and motivation from Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Why, Paul? Tenderhearted. Oh, do I have to? Forgiving one another. Seriously? As God in Christ forgave you. Who we used to be what we've done and what we used to do, the amount of stuff Jesus was willing to pay for and come to us bloodied and broken with his open arms and saying, son, daughter, just come home. I love you. I'm over that. That needs to drive you to go to your brother who did something crappy to you. That needs to give you the humility you need to go and eat crow with no ranch dressing because of what Jesus did for you. So this church family needs to be a place of real active, constant reconciliation. And if we're not doing that, now's a good time to start. Alright, last one. Almost didn't say this because it was too general. The church fam is a place of real love. 
I am not going to cite any verses saying to love each other. Why am I not going to do that? Because they're everywhere. It was like almost ridiculous. I was going to exhaust myself trying to pick the right one. Let me just say this. Use a concordance. Go on blueletterbible.com. Look up love one another. It's amazing. There are so many. But God's type of love, we have to remember, is not empty emotion. It's not like a swelling of emotions. Like, oh, I feel so fondly for you, Darren. Peace. Right? That's not God's type of love. God's type of love inspires action. It meets needs. It speaks the truth. It serves. And it truly wants the best for the other person. The chapter that says the most overtly about love is 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the things it says there is love believes the best. You got, you got a couple different motives that could be in place from what you just saw happen. Well, my go-to is the best possible one for the other person because that's love. Now, if I find out different later, that's unfortunate, but we believe the best until proven otherwise. That's love. Why might you need to be loved by a church community? If you're a human being, you come up with reasons every day. Maybe your biological family is an absolute hot mess disaster. You have one. And maybe you don't. I was, was talking to a guy last week that blew my mind. And I don't want to get into details, but I did not know. He did not have a family. Like, anyone. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I was like, how did you, how did you make it? He was like, I don't know. I, I just did it. You learned to take care of yourself. Yeah. And I, I did not know what to do with that. Like, I had no grit. It felt like your heart like just kind of sinks into this abyss. And it's like... I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Like, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. Lies. Maybe you've got a work conflict. Maybe work is awful. It's crappy. You don't know what to do. Maybe you've had a catastrophic financial situation. You have nowhere to turn. Maybe you're emotionally frayed, drained, damaged. Maybe you just need to talk. Maybe you need to heal. Maybe you need to pray about something. Maybe you need to process something. Maybe you need to celebrate you ever been happy and there's nobody to be happy with? Come on, yeah. Happiness doesn't hang around long. It turns into loneliness, and it's gross. Maybe you need somebody to rejoice with. Maybe you just need a good dose of joy or a laugh. Maybe you need to hang out. Maybe you need some wisdom, some support, some counsel. Maybe you need some correction. Maybe you know you need some other eyes in your life. And you can say, man, can you just give me, what do you think of this? What do you think of what I'm doing? This is how I'm handling this. What do you think? All of that falls under the banner of love. That's right. And church needs to be a family yeah. where you can count on it to be stable and permanent enough yeah. that you can go and you can give and take yeah. as needed. So give and take love as needed. If we have designated givers and designated takers 100% of the time for life, neither side is probably being truthful. Yeah. Come on. Things change. So a place of real encouragement, a place of real reconciliation, a place of real love, and it's a place that is chasing down a goal. Our go. family, has, it has an end, it has a destination. It's supposed to look like something. This thing called church as a unit is moving towards looking like our big brother. Come on. Because he looks just like that. Yeah. <laughs> We're supposed to be like Jesus. Why are we supposed to be like Jesus? Why is that not just a, why is that just not like a cheesy bumper sticker thing to say that every one of you should let fly over the top of your head and not think about it again? 
It's because Jesus was so perfectly like God the Father, it's intimidating to think about if you actually ponder it. Listen to what Jesus said about his own life in John 14. He's having a, a last big fat conversation with his guys, his friends, before he goes and dies a horrible death. He's bearing his soul. They're asking him questions freely. This is a heavy moment. And so Philip says, look, show us the Father. Before you do this thing that you're about to do, just show us the Father, and that's enough for us. You can feel it. He's like, just give us something to hang on to, man. If what you're saying is about to happen, like, we, we need a boost, okay? Show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Show us the Father. Have I been with you so long you still don't know me? Hmm. Think about that for a minute. Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you even ask me that, man? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. You can also check out John chapter 8. Jesus is saying, no man has seen God, but if you've seen me, I act like him, I talk like him, I walk like him, I think like him. If you've been hanging out with me for three years and you're still asking to see God the Father, you've not been paying attention, or you haven't believed who I actually am. This is how you see God, Jesus. So what does Paul tell the church to be like in Ephesians 4, 13 to 15? Not surprisingly, Jesus. Let me back up before you read that there's a passage that we talk a lot about in Ephesians 4. Who's heard of the fivefold ministry? Fivefold things: the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Right? We write lots of books on that, as we should. We like to talk about what it means. We like to break down the roles, and we like to talk about what each role is supposed to do. Are pastor and teacher the same? Are they different? How is it supposed to be organized? Is it a regional thing? Is this a local thing? Books after books after books, and conferences, and all kinds of stuff. And that is not bad. It's cool. We should want to dig into that because it is awesome. And Paul talks about those people as being gifts to the church. Don't you want to know what gift you got? But Paul says those are given as a gift to the church for something. It's to something. There's an end. You got these amazing people so that you could be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Are we all as individuals supposed to become more and more Christ-like? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Is this talking about all of us as individuals? <coughs> No. no. What? What? Oh. The fivefold gift. That's right. What? Church question. It's a gift to the church. Yeah. Paul just got done explaining the church is the body of Christ. So, what is being built up to become mature? What is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? What is growing to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head? That is Jesus. The church. The church. The actual corporate body. All of us. That means when someone walks in the door and they talk to Ben, Ben shouldn't just be Christ-like. It means we should all be so corporately Christ-like in all the various ways we reflect the character of God that walking in the door 
with all of us is like being in the presence of Jesus himself. As a family. Come on. That's right. We're supposed to be like our big brother because he's just like dad. And Kathy Newman said, so what you're saying is, God intends the church to be family. He does. It's not a disputable fact. It's not a metaphor. It should be healthy. That's not an italics because it should be, but it's probably not. It's in italics because it has every reason to be healthy. Yeah. It has every resource. It has every motivation. It has everything it needs. It should be healthy. It should be a place of encouragement and reconciliation and love. And it should be like being around Jesus yeah, when you're around your church family because the goal of this family is to look like our Father. That's right. I'm going to give it to Shamrock to close. Thank you, guys. Thank you.